0: This afternoon we complete our study of the first chapter of Colossians, looking at sections verses 24 to 29. I begin by reading the section in your hearing so that we can have the language and the imagery in front of us. So if you have your Bible open to verse 24, we begin there. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister, according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. That I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. Now as we observe the beginning of this section, I'm asking if you notice the connection that it provides with the previous section, namely what relationship or connectional nexus does 24 have with 21 to 23, particularly verse 23. Do you see it? Hence the pronoun. You're nodding your head, Art. What well, do you see? In the previous section, at the end, he switches from you to I. Very good. And continues with the I in verse 24. Very good. So it is the continuation of the first person personal pronoun, which identifies Paul as he identifies himself there directly in verse 23, <clears throat> continuing to describe his own situation in verses 24 and following. So we have this seamless narrative or this seamless sequence. The ending of the previous unit continuing into the successive unit, Paul joining his narrative biography to the narrative biography of his Colossian readers both of whom are joined to the narrative biography of the Lord Jesus Christ. This union motif, this being in Christ, this being joined unto Christ, is a joining which interfaces the three biographical narratives. The I-narrative of Paul, which is being explicitly described here in verses 24 to 29, he's filling out his own story, to the you, which was was inaugurated in verse 21 and dominates verses 21 to 23, that is the Colossians story, which is also joined to the he, which dominates verses 15 to 20, which is Christ's own story. So here you have that intertwining, interleaved relationship of what union with Christ means. Union with him means you are drawn into that wonderful Union and relationship means that I, too, the apostle who I am writing to you, have been joined into that wonderful relationship. The story of Christ influences the story of the Colossians, influences the story of Paul. Paul's story is related to the Colossians story, is related to Christ's story. And so you have this uh, very significant sequence of the use of the personal pronouns to pinpoint that <coughs> Facet or that interface of the story which is above all stories. Now, there's a sidelight here. This relational interface, this union with Christ that results in the story of Christ being reflected in the story of Paul, being reflected in the story of those who have heard the gospel which Paul preaches, (coughs) That story must be historical. It must be actual. It must be real. Because if it's a fantasy, if it's an invention, if it's a fabrication, if it is somebody inventing this narrative, then it is a fraud. It is false. It is deceit. So, this Narrative sequence which the apostle is spinning out here requires historicity, not pseudonymity. It requires historicity, not fantasy. It requires, requires historicity if it is going to be reality. Now there I'm reflecting upon the popular and dominant modern view that this epistle does not belong to the historical Apostle Paul. If it does not, then we have a lying fabrication. But if it is the Apostles, as I have indicated, uh, I believe the text itself indicates, the church itself has vindicated that testimony that it belongs to the Apostle Paul. If that be the case, Then we're dealing with the reality of Christ's story, which many modern theologians think is somewhat mythical. We're dealing with the reality of the Colossians' story, and we're dealing with the reality of Paul's story. So this sequence reflects on larger issues, but it also reflects on personal issues. It draws us us (coughs) into the arena of Paul the arena of the Colossian Christians, the arena which Christ inhabits as the Lord of the new creation. Now, the next thing that we want to observe, particularly in verse 24, is the language of duplication. So I want you to take a look at the verse. I want you to see if there's any language there that reminds you of language that you have seen previously or if you want to look elsewhere for language which is also found here in verse 24. So let's take a moment and let's see what you may come up with. looking for duplication. Alright, let me give you a hint. You see the word flesh in verse 24. As you look up into the previous section, go ahead, Kay. Okay. In verse, 22. March, in verse 22, you also see the word flesh or fleshly. It's the same word in the Greek. So there's one <clears throat> duplication. Any other duplication? Well, look at verse 22 again, and then look at verse 24 and see if you find... Another duplicate term. The body. Very good. So body occurs in 24. It occurs in 22. It also occurs in verse 18. And finally, something else which occurs in verse 18, which occurs in verse 24. The church. Very good. Now, here's this language which Paul uses when he's talking about himself, himself in relationship to his flesh, himself in relationship to the body, which is the church of Christ. Here's Paul echoing the body of his flesh in the flesh of Christ's body. He's doing this intentionally. These duplications are echo patterns. But then within this 24th verse, not outside of it, but within it, he adds some additional duplicates. Notice, let's see if you can find them. Find it, as a matter of fact. There's another duplication in verse 24 itself. Something occurs, excuse me, something occurs twice in that verse. Yes, very good. They are synonyms. It's not the same Greek word, but they are synonyms. So he talks about his sufferings, and he talks about Christ's afflictions or Christ's sufferings. So Paul is echoing Christ in himself. Paul in Christ, Christ in Paul, the echo of Christ's suffering in my suffering. Once again, This relational reflection of his story reflected in Christ's story. Now finally, also within that 24th verse, there is another duplicate. It is a preposition. It's simply one word in Greek, but it stands for the way, for a number of English words in translation. You'll notice the phrase, On behalf of, I do my share on behalf of his body. And then the phrase above it, for your sake, or for the sake of you. That's one Greek word in each case. It's a preposition, which means in the place of, or for the sake of, or on behalf of. Now, That preposition echoes a reference to what Christ has done. There is no direct mention of what Christ has done there in terms of his redeeming work. But that preposition elsewhere is used by the New Testament writers to indicate what Christ has done on behalf of sinners or for the sake of his redeemed people. Paul is borrowing a preposition that has a large, poignant sense to it. That is, it's often used to describe what Christ has done on our behalf. More echoes, then, of Christ in Paul and Paul in Christ. This union motif, this union relation, this en Christo pattern, which we have indicated is present from the outset of this first chapter. All right, so you're realizing that in this 24th verse, there are echoes. Echoes of the relational bond between Christ and the Apostle. The union motif, the union bond between Christ and Paul. But in describing this relational union, in so close So intimate, so precious a detail, Paul is joined to the suffering in Christ in such a way that his own sufferings will, as he says there in that verse, fill up what is lacking or not fulfilled in Christ's suffering. Paul says that I may fill up that which is lacking, In Christ's affliction or Christ's suffering. It's interesting that in the Vulgate or in the Latin version of this verse, the word passio, which refers to the passion of Christ. The word passio, which means in English simply suffering. Passion of Christ is a reflection on his suffering on the cross. The word passio translates both the word that Paul uses for his sufferings and Christ's affliction. So the Latin translator translated the two different Greek words with the same Latin word in order to underscore the emphasis upon the passion of Christ, even in the passions of Paul. All right, now, that I may fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. That would appear to be a contradiction. That would be, be, appear to be a conc- contradiction of what Christ did. For did not Christ's suffering fully pay the penalty of our redemption and forgiveness of sins? As he says in verse 14, is he implying that that has not been fulfilled? Does not Christ's body of death... Perfectly reconcile, or obtain once and for all peace through the blood of his cross, which is what he's saying in verse 20, that the blood of the cross makes peace. What is lacking? What is not yet fulfilled? Does not Christ's body of death, Effectually or efficaciously finish the charge which is lodged against all sinners, the charge of guilt and death and everlasting wrath. Did not Christ himself say, it is finished? What then remains? What is lacking? What's he talking about? Yes. You feel the tension, don't you? Even what liberal theologians like to label paradox. Paradox. No, that's not two doctors. That's that's implicit contradiction or tension. Well... There is no contradiction here, and there is no paradox. The efficacious suffering of Christ is finished. He's not going to the cross again. That is done. And its effect is over for Christ. Yes, the effect of the cross is over for Christ, and it is over for those who United to Christ in its effect. That's what I mean by efficacious. That's what I mean by effective. When he said it was finished, he was efficaciously effecting it. The efficacious suffering of Christ is finished. It is. Its effect is over for Christ and for those United to Christ in its effect. All right, we agree. That is clear. But, but the sufferings of Christ as extensive. The sufferings of Christ as extensive. The sufferings of Christ in His people, in their lives. as they suffer, these sufferings, these afflictions extend beyond the cross. And this extension of the sufferings of Christ in the sufferings of Paul and the sufferings of the Colossian Christians and the sufferings of us if we suffer for Christ's sake, these sufferings Extending through history beyond the cross. These extended sufferings, these ongoing sufferings are united to his once and for all sufferings. Christians are in Christ in his suffering on the cross. He suffers on the cross no more It is ended. Christ is in Christians suffering after the cross. The ongoing suffering of Christians in Christ extends his affliction in them. The union with Christ's sufferings means he suffers for their sake on their behalf. They suffer for him, for his sake On his behalf. Once again, I say, he suffered on their behalf, they suffer on his behalf. That's what Paul is driving at here. Now notice, we began this discussion by featuring the union, the precious union between Christ and Paul. So Paul is saying, I am united in my sufferings to the sufferings of my Lord Jesus. He's not contradicting any previous finality of the suffering of Christ. He's saying, I have been brought into the mystery of his suffering so that it is extended in the sufferings of his people down through the ages. Because we are united to Him, and as He suffered in our place, so now we are pleased to suffer in His place, or to suffer for His sake, or to suffer on His behalf, to bear about in our bodies the suffering of the Lord Jesus. You see the you see the connection. You can't break it apart. You can't break it apart. The punctiliar, the once and for allness of it on the cross from the fact that that he says, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness, when you suffer for righteousness' sake. You're suffering on my behalf, for my sake. The extension of my suffering includes you because I have brought you into union with me. This is the way you resolve this apparent tension this apparent paradox of the Apostles' stunning language here. You resolve it by what John Murray used to call mystical union with Christ. That's the resolution of this apparent tension and contradiction. You in Christ, Christ in you. Christ for you, you for Christ. That's what the relational relationship of union and being joined unto him, being married unto the Lord Jesus, that's what it means. And Paul is expressing a feature of it here. Even in language which puzzles and often bewilders us and causes us to pause and say, whoa, that doesn't sound just right. Well, I hope you now know that it sounds just right. Because it is just what Paul experienced and declares. and Christo. All right. The bond between Christ's sufferings and Paul's sufferings and Christians' sufferings is so close that as Paul and Christians go on suffering for Christ's sake, they are wonderfully or spiritually drawn into the Lord's very own once and for all affliction. Finished efficaciously, as Christ the Lord is drawn into their extended ongoing suffering and affliction. Think of it in terms of representation. As Christ represents them in suffering, so they represent Christ in suffering. Paul is saying here, I am one with Christ in his suffering in the body of his flesh. Even as my sufferings in the flesh of my body are an ongoing display of the efficacy of his sufferings on my behalf. I am united to him. He is united to me. I am joined to his sufferings efficaciously. That is completed me in Christ. I am joined to his sufferings extensively. That is the ongoing history of Christ in me, yes, Pam. Um, in 19, when it talks about all fullness as well, is that kind of like the same thing with his, the, his suffering being complete by the fullness? No, that fullness in 19 is specifically with respect to the Godhead, okay. the the <clears throat> the uh, immutable, the unshareable. Unsha- unsha- character of the son of god as god himself. Okay. And it's not with Paul being related to the suffering. No. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Now I want you to look at another passage. Turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. With what we have said in mind, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 Verse 5. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. The sufferings of Christ are ours. This is the same type of thing that he is saying in Colossians 1.24. He's saying to the Corinthians, (coughs) without saying it the way he says it to the Colossians, but nonetheless it has the same point. The sufferings of Christ are ours. In the punctiliar sense and in the extensive sense, the ongoing sense. So he fills out or fleshes out in Colossians 1 a little more about what that implies, but the same theme, the same doctrine is present there in 2 Corinthians 1 as well, if that passage helps you a little bit with Colossians 1.24. All right, we conclude then that what is lacking is not the efficacy of Christ's sufferings. Christians in Christ, there's nothing lacking there. What is lacking is the completion of the extension in history of Christians suffering as their Savior suffered, Christ in Christians. Notice what he says in verse 27 to back up my final statement there, Christ in Christians. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Yes, you and Christo, but Christ in you. You in Christ at the cross, efficaciously and effectively, but Christ in you extensively and ongoingly, historically. Any questions or comments that you might have about that explanation. I'm not an infallible teacher, of course, but this is the way I think the apostles' language is understood and the tension resolved. So much of the apparent tension that we find in the scriptures finds its answer in union with God, union with Christ union with the Godhead without destroying the creator-creature distinction. All right, now on to verse 26. And the word that dominates that verse, which is the word mystery. And of course, it's a mystery. So what is the mystery? All you Sherlock Holmes fans, you sleuthers, Perhaps you Perry Mason fans? Salvation for everyone, not just Jews. Good. Good, Bob. Okay, now when you say everyone, particularly who else besides Jews? All the rest of the redeemed. Okay. Did he use a term for that in the next verse? What do you see in verse 27, Bob? Christ in you. Okay. God chose to make known uh-huh. among the Gentiles. There's the word. Yes, there's the Gentiles. <clears throat> All right, so the mystery involves everyone. Beside the Jews and everyone beside the Jews are the Gentiles, which includes most of us. (laughs) All right. So the mystery is the Gentile inclusion in the plan of redemption. But he also says in verse 27 that the mystery is Christ in you. We've already commented on that phrase. So there he's emphasizing what? What? The mystery is, what does Christ in you mean, Marge? Union with Christ. So there's part of the mystery as well. In other words, <clears throat> this term mystery is multiform. It's multifaceted. It's like a diamond. You can look at a diamond from different points of view and it shines more brilliantly. And its colors shine more, quite differently. You, you get different uh, lusters out of the diamond. Here, this mystery is like a diamond. There are different points of light in it. <clears throat> One of it is the salvation of the Gentiles. The other thing is union with Christ. That is certainly a part of the mystery that you would be united to the Son of God. Who would have dreamed that? Not even the angels dreamed that. And yet... That is what Jesus did in his incarnation. He brought that reality into history that he would unite himself to human nature in order that human nature, even sinful human nature, could be united to him and saved and redeemed in the the process. All right, now, take a look at verse 2 of chapter 2. Once again, we're looking at this word mystery. And we're realizing that it's a multifaceted diamond. This is a diamond mystery. What does he say the mystery is in that verse? 2-2. Christ himself is the mystery, which is part of Pam's question about the fullness in verse 19 of chapter 1. Namely, that the fullness of godness would appear in history In Jesus of Nazareth, that the Son of God would be godness as God the Father is godness, as God the Holy Spirit is godness. The essential godness of God is in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet that's not three gods. All right, so here in verse 2, Christ himself is the mystery and all that that means about who Christ is. And finally... If you keep your finger there in that part of Colossians and turn over to chapter 4 verse 3, this is the last time he uses the word mystery in the epistle. What's he mean there? The mystery of Christ, okay? She has been imprisoned, so I think that must mean salvation. Fact, the fact, Christ is God. She's saying salvation. He's saying deity of Christ. Anybody else have any suggestions? What's he mean by mystery of Christ? <clears throat> the word of that mystery.
1: Anybody else?
0: Thank you, Judy. The of means a genitive case in Greek. This is a genitive of reference. There you go, Denison. There's that fancy stuff again. But that's the grammar of the text. So, genitive of reference. What's that mean? It means that the of has reference to Christ. And that means that what Kay said was right, what Bob said was right, what Judy said was right. In other words, this is a multifaceted mystery diamond. Remember. There are lots of angles. There's lots of light shining out of this mystery. It has reference to Christ, to his Godhead, to his deity, to his redeeming work, to his body of death, to his death on the cross, to his union with his people, Christ in you. All of that is is behind this genitive of reference in chapter 4, verse 3. All right, so... We have a very rich mystery here. It's a mystery which is no longer hidden. It's a mystery that's no longer a secret. It's a mystery that no longer means to be sleuthed out. You're not waiting for the end of the movie to see who done it. You know parts of this mystery. Well, think a little bit more then about the richness of this mystery. Because you can't exhaust it any more than you could exhaust the uh, brilliance of a, a beautiful diamond. You could always see different facets of it as you keep turning it and examining it. That's not quite accurate. There's a finite item, so you could say there's a finite end to what you could see there. <clears throat> In this uh, mystery, uh, there is no end. There is an infinite infinitely lavish and brilliant and faceted mystery. Now, I mentioned a little bit ago that the angels didn't understand this mystery. This was hidden from them as well as hidden from the Old Testament saints for the most part. We want to look a little bit later at Paul's comments about how the Old Testament projects this Gentile plan of salvation. But at this point, we want to realize that, of course, it was hidden from the Gentiles in that era. It was restricted to those who had the oracles of God, as Paul puts it in the book of Romans. God's intent was to deal first with the Jew and then with the Gentiles. And when the Jew rejected, then the Gentiles came flourishing and and pouring into the kingdom. That was the experience of Paul in his own ministry. He finally had to shake the dust off his feet from the Jewish synagogues because they would not listen. And he said, now I go to the Gentiles. Now, the footnote here is this Colossian church meeting in whose house? Philemon's house is this Colossian church meeting in Philemon's house? Does it have any Jews in it? Bob's nodding his head. Why do you think so, Bob? Um, I can't remember right now, but I, I'm sure there were Jews in it. But I don't. <laughs> there, yes, there was a Jewish population in Colossae, and although we don't have any confirmation of any names of Jewish people in this congregation. Nonetheless, it's not impossible that there were some. And when we come to chapter 2, we'll take a look at some things which may actually confirm that, though they don't explicitly say there were Jewish converts. But Paul, in going to the Gentiles, was not barring the Jews. He was not locking them out. He was bringing them into the rest of the story. He said, your Judaism is over. You've got to get beyond it. You've got to get over it. You've got to come to Christ and to the fullness of the revelation which has come in and through Christ. That era is gone. It's passed away. Your temple is going to be destroyed and it was. And it will never be rebuilt. So, he's not, he's not shutting out Jewish converts. They're welcome. Come and welcome to Christ. Come and welcome to the church of Christ. The synagogue is over. No more synagogues. That's not the way God is is authorizing the assembly of his people. The worshiping people of God gather in the ecclesia, a word that he used twice in this first chapter in the assembly of Christ. Paul, uh, Bob. When, Christ, when he would go somewhere, he would first go to the Jews and then go to the Gentiles. So whatever Jews he picked up along with him then would be... Part of the church that became joined with the Gentiles. Yes, there were Jewish converts in his early ministry, but then he came to the point where, as he said, he shook the dust off his feet and said, "Now I go." So he wasn't going to begin with the synagogues anymore. But that didn't mean he was closing the door on Jews who would hear the gospel or hear him preach or would come to the churches to hear. All right. Now, I mentioned um, Paul's uh, comments about this commission that he received. Well, man, we should ask you, when when did he receive the commission to preach to the Gentiles? Was that on his missionary journeys? Damascus Damascus Road. Very good, Bob. Let's go back to Acts again. Let's take a look at the Damascus Road experience. Begin with chapter 9, verses 15 to 16. This is the Lord speaking to Ananias. And he's talking about Paul. Go, he says to Ananias, for he that is Saul, or Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and, note, the sons of Israel. So it was the Lord Himself who commissioned Paul to go to the Gentiles. Now He repeats that, Paul Himself repeats it, in chapter 22 verse 21. These are the three places in the book of Acts where Paul's Damascus Road experience is recalled, chapter 9, chapter 22, and chapter 26, and chapter 22 verse 21. Paul says, he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Understood that what Ananias was instructed to say to him, he said to Paul, and Paul heard it as the voice of the Lord God. And finally, in chapter 26, verses 17 and 18, I'm sorry, yes, verses 17 and 18, Where Paul is describing the events on the Damascus Road. He's he's told in verse 16 to rise and stand on his feet. I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. To open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. I don't want you to close the Bible yet. I don't want you to take your eyes off of that 18th verse yet. You will notice that he repeats his commission to preach to the Gentiles, given to him by the resurrected and living Lord Jesus Christ. But what do you see in that 18th verse? What do you see that you've already seen in Colossians? What do you see there? Very good. Yes. Thank you, Loretta. In verse 12 and 13 of Colossians 1, you've seen that language. What else? How about the word dominion? He brought you into the dominion of the kingdom of the Son of God. Verse 13 of Colossians 1. What else do you see there? The inheritance, right. Once again, verse 12 of Colossians 1. What else do you see there? One more phrase. The forgiveness of sins from what verse in Colossians? Yes, Colossians 1.14. In other words, that Acts 26.18 passage is a virtual instant replay of Colossians 1, 12, 13, and 14. Or, Paul was so enamored... Of that imagery, that he repeats it in the epistle to the Colossians when he writes it. Because the epistle is after this appearance before Agrippa. You get the mind of this apostle, you get the spiritual heart of this apostle. He's filled up with this imagery and language. It's so much a part of him that it flows out of him even when he writes to the Colossian believers. What I was delivered into, what I received as the inheritance in light, what I received in terms of forgiveness of sins, what I received in terms of the dominion of the kingdom of the Son of God, what I received as one of the saints, you have received. You Colossians have received. Because Christ is all of it. Christ in you. He's the light. He's the inheritance. He's the dominion. He's the king of the kingdom. He's the son of the father's love. He's the source of forgiveness of sins. He's the eschatological saint of saints. All right, now we turn to the word uh, riches, which is in verse 27. Actually, the phrase, riches of the glory, and ask ourselves, what's the extent, what's the dimension of these riches? Well, it's the riches of the glory of heaven, the glory of the eschatological dimension, the glory of that new creation, which we have been talking about since uh, verse 12. We rehearsed that litany of the new creation last time, but just a few comments. The riches of that world of the new creation is the riches of a world of light, the riches of the glory light of him who is the king of glory and calls himself the light of the world. All that imagery comes to expression when Paul uses that term In verse 12 here, so that's part of the riches that he's describing here, which is the mystery of Christ in that richness. That new creation is the world of the kingdom of the beloved son of the father, as he says in verse 13 of chapter one. The riches of that glorious kingdom, as the song uh, says. Oh, that glorious kingdom. That world of the new creation is a world of redemption. As he says in verse 14 of chapter 1. The riches of that glorious redemption. Redemption into that glory. The riches of that world are a world rich with the resurrection body of Jesus of Nazareth. The riches of that resurrection glory already possessed by the body of Jesus himself oh that will be glory says to him well that glory will not only be the glorification of the soul at death but the glorification of body and soul reunited at the resurrection as Jesus's body and soul are reunited on easter sunday and raised up into glorious into the glorious kingdom so the bodily resurrection is part of that riches which is the reason that the historicity of the resurrection of the body of Christ is crucial to our understanding of our own destiny. Our destiny is as his destiny. If his body is in the grave, our bodies aren't going to come out of the grave. If it's a myth, then a myth doesn't help us. So, this bodily resurrection of Christ is both present and future riches in terms of our anticipation and our possession by faith of that richness in possessing the resurrected body of Christ, the resurrected Christ in his body. And finally, the world of these riches is the world of the riches of reconciliation to God, the riches of that peace which passes all understanding all human understanding cannot comprehend the peace of that glory, the peace and rest of that glorious state, that glorious world, that glorious new creation. And on we could go as we did last time by detailing the elements of the litany of the new creation as we described it then. These are the riches of that mystery in Christ, who is Christ in you. The hope of that glory. That's the glory that you hope for. These are the riches of the glory that you anticipate and provisionally possess. Now, let me make another narrative biographical note here. We're talking about the riches of glory. The glorious riches of heaven's arena itself. Let me remind you that Saul of Tarsus, on that Damascus road, saw all of those glorious riches. He saw the light of that new creation. He saw the domain of the kingdom of the beloved Son of the Father, Jesus. He saw the world and the arena of redemption and was drawn into the riches of it on that Damascus road. He saw the resurrected body glorified of Jesus of Nazareth, and he identified with it. I have been crucified together with him. I have been raised up together with him. And out of that experience of the Damascus Road, Saul of Tarsus had peace with God, which peace he had never truly had before, always striving, always working, always trying to merit or earn. Because that's the religion of Judaism. Merit, earning, deserving, being worthy of. It still is. It is not the religion of Christianity. That religion is union with Christ by grace, by grace, by grace, by grace, by grace. It is not of works. He reminds his Colossian readers then that their story is like his story. Christ in me says Paul. Christ in you, but first Christ in me, says Paul, on the Damascus road. Christ in me, the hope of glory which I am looking at on the Damascus road. I'm seeing it with my eyes. I can't be a Jew anymore. This glory isn't Jewish. And reminding his Colossians readers that their story is the mirror reflection of his own story with respect to this glorious reality of the world of the new creation in which They dwell. They dwell with him. They dwell with him, with Christ, because Christ is all the glory of that rich new creation. All right, that brings us to verse 28, unless you have some questions. The words, every man, three times repeated in this verse. The trifecta. Every man in the world. We admonish every man, teach every man, present every man, every man in the world. Is that what he means? Every man. Every man in Christ. Not completely wrong, not completely right. <laughs> okay. What does he mean? He doesn't mean every man universally, does he? Couldn't. He didn't meet every man universally. But those whom he did meet, to them he proclaims Christ Jesus, Jew or Gentile. To those whom he did meet, those he teaches or instructs about Christ Jesus, Jew or Gentile. To those he did admonish or warn about the danger of rejecting Christ Jesus, he spoke to them, Jew and Gentile. Every man and woman and child, by the, for that matter, with whom he had a relationship, with whom he had came in contact with respect, to preaching, teaching, admonishing everyone. He directed to the fullness of what it means to be in Christ. The fullness now and the fullness not yet. The perfect fullness in its tandem, in its relational development, now not yet leading unto perfect fullness or fullness in perfection. So that perfection is not being addressed here as a possibility for the believer in the flesh. It is the maturity of that believer's life in the glory of that glorious kingdom. But it is. It is the goal of that glorification. Perfection in righteousness. Perfection in holiness. Perfection in in sinlessness, perfection in painlessness, perfection in no more suffering, perfection will come. It is the promise. The provisional participation in that perfect perfection is part of being joined to Him who has it in perfect dimension and perfect power and perfect reality. All right, now, notice that these are marks of maturity. Talking about perfection or completeness in Christ, these are marks of maturity, growth and wisdom, knowledge, understanding, moral maturity by way of preaching, Teaching, instruction, admonition, this letter and its meaning and message is part of the process of maturing in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are here because you are in the process of maturing in the Lord Jesus Christ by wisdom from Colossians, knowledge from Colossians. Understanding from Colossians, moral instruction from Colossians. We'll get to the third chapter, and there's lots of moral instruction in chapter 3. Admonition from cautions Warnings and alerts to how to think properly about your union with Christ. How to delight vividly and richly in your union with Christ. You are here To mature in Christ Jesus and in your union with him. That is the goal of the apostles' work. That is the goal of the stewardship that was committed to him. That is the goal of every church that he planted. That is the goal of every epistle that he wrote. That is the goal of the whole counsel of God for his people. Maturity. Growth. Not content with your present wisdom, your present knowledge, your present understanding, even your present moral condition. You keep on maturing and growing and learning and understanding and becoming wiser and becoming more ethically pure. That is the program. God doesn't want any dropouts from his program. He wants you to stay with the program all the way to the end of the line. And so, as you heed Paul's language here, so you take counsel with your own soul, mind, heart, and will. And I pray that you will keep on maturing in what Paul lists here so that you may become even wiser unto salvation, seeking out the knowledge and love of God in Christ Jesus, your Savior, understanding more of the rich treasures that are part of his blessing to you, that you will not be content with remaining stuck where you are, content with what you now possess, that you will deeply and richly and sweetly and lovingly follow your Savior into the length and the height and the depth and the riches of God in Christ Jesus, as Paul says in Romans. Stagnation is not an option in the Christian faith. Remaining static is not an option in the Christian faith. You must keep learning of Christ. For he wants you to. He wants you to know more and more about him as you meditate and think and learn and study his word. He wants you to mature to the fullness of perfection. And indeed, will bring you to that point at last when he brings you home to see him face to face. All right, now we've got a we clause here or a we pronoun in verse 28. Who are some of the we behind that pronoun? We have the I, that's Paul, but that's a plural first person pronoun. More than a single I. Who are some of the we people that he's talking about? We proclaim him. Timothy. Timothy in verse one of the first chapter, correct? Who else? Who, who proclaimed to the Colossians? Judy, who proclaimed to the Colossians? Marge, Epaphras, verse 7 of chapter 1. So, Epaphras is obviously part of the we crowd. Who else? Associated with Philemon. Onesimus, chapter 4, verse 9, is part of the we crowd. We're not going to exhaust this list, but there's one more in chapter 4. It's in verse 14. Luke the, Luke the beloved physician. Yes. Luke who's already written two books. Luke, one of the we who proclaims Christ. He certainly does in his gospel and he does in the record of the proclamation of the apostles in the book of Acts. So these individuals particularly commended As part of the we pronoun in that 28th verse. Now to verse 29. And focusing our attention on that word labor. For This purpose, I also labor. This is hard labor. This is hard work. The work of preaching, teaching, admonishing, digging, drawing out treasures old and new. This is labor. This took Paul a lot of time. It took him perhaps years in the desert of Arabia. It also took him years in missionary journeyings. It took him years in imprisonment, perhaps two imprisonments. This is hard work. But he's drawing out the treasures old and new as he learns more and more about how Jesus is the displacement and replacement of the Judaism in which he was entrenched and enslaved. He has to rethink everything about the Old Testament. He has to rethink everything in the light of Christ. That's hard work. He's undoing what he had been taught at the feet of Gamaliel, and he's redoing everything at the feet of Christ in the desert. These treasures, old and new, that Paul is drawing out by teaching and preaching and admonishing. They are not novelties. They are not novelties like the doctrine of Israel at Mount Sinai republishing The role of Adam in the Garden of Eden. No, not novelties, not unbiblical and unconfessional novelties. That's not what Paul is about. He's about drawing out the rich and lavish deep treasures of the old truths of the Old Testament reflected marvelously and wondrously in the truths of the new creation in Christ Jesus. He's finishing the story. He's rounding out the narrative. He's seeing how Christ is the very heart and soul of that whole Old Testament Scripture. But when he comes, that Old Testament Scripture is fulfilled in that way. And he will have nothing other than Christ and him crucified. That's the world of the new creation in Christ Jesus that Paul labors hard at understanding, at penetrating, digging into. This is the glory of those enriched old paths with the new, deeper, and profound new paths in Jesus Christ that Paul and the inspired apostles are providing for us in their written revelations. In what they have left behind for us to study and to penetrate and to think about and to delve into. We haven't begun to scratch the surface of the treasures of this book. We haven't begun to do it because we are not always thinking properly about the relationship between Christ and the Old Testament and Christ and His apostles. We're trying to reduce them to our culture or mold them into our contemporaneity or make them relevant for us. They're not going to make, we're not they're supposed to make them relevant for us. They make us relevant to them. Our relevance is in Christ. It's not trying to might make Christ relevant. You want to make Christ relevant, you end up with dead churches. Just look at Mars Hill, gone. Gone. Disappeared. You reduce Christ to the practical and that's what you end up with. You end up with nothing. Or on the liberal side, you want to make Christ relevant, then you become social justice warriors and then you empty your churches from other reasons. Liberal churches are not growing. They play the political card over and over and over again. And what it does is it costs them members over and over and over again. And they are dying a slow death. But they're making Christ relevant to the contemporary political culture and the social causes of this generation and they've been doing it since the end of the 19th century, Russian Bush's social gospel, which ended up emptying churches then. People aren't looking for social gospel gospels. They're not looking for political agendas from the pulpit. They're looking for Christ who answers all of their anxieties and their cares and their concerns and their hopes and their joys and their longing Desiring hearts. That's what they're looking for. So don't give them Christ. Don't give them Christ. Don't work hard at giving them Christ. You just pay attention to that program and don't do it. And I promise you failure. I promise you eventually no more group. I promise you eventually empty pews. I promise you eventually dying denominations. You take the hard work of keeping Christ at the center out of your preaching and teaching and your messaging and you have signed your death warrant already. But if you work hard, diligently digging into the height and depth and length of the word of God, if you promote the centrality of Christ in all that you do, which means servanthood, not manipulation and domination, not tyranny over people in the pew, but serving. If you work hard at that, then you will keep the church alive in Christ because you are alive in Christ. And Christ is the center of all you do in that preaching, teaching, admonishing, instructing from beginning to end. But Paul's labor is not only hard labor. Yes, he's working on the rock pile of cracking the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. He's using the sledgehammer of the Holy Spirit to break into those hidden mysteries and treasures. But it's not only that. It is the power that is behind that labor. And the word he uses here, which is actually the last word in the Greek text of this first chapter. The word that he uses here is duname. And what do you see in that word? Do you see an English word in that? Marge, you're nodding your head. Dynamite. Dynamite. Dynamite is an explosive power. The power that is within him is dynamite. It is the supernatural power working mightily in Paul's labors. It's the power of the risen Christ. Was that dynamite power that brought that dead body to life? That was dynamite. Was that dynamite power that broke onto the Sea of Galilee and quieted the winds and the waves? That was dynamite power. Was that power that raised Lazarus from the dead and brought him out of that tomb? That was dynamite power. And what about that power that cast demons out of those that were demon-possessed? That was an explosion of dynamite power, an explosion of the kingdom of heaven power, explosion of what the kingdom of heaven is like. There are no more demons in there. There never were any demons there. They were all cast out anyway, and they became rebel demons, rebel angels, demonic rebel angels. Jesus is showing you in all those miracles that he performs, the dynamite of the kingdom of heaven, the power of the kingdom of heaven. Has power over demonic forces, power over death, power over sickness, power over the wind and the waves, power over nature. Five loaves and two fishes, power to feed 5,000. Paul is tapped into that dynamite. He's tapped into that power by virtue of his union with Christ. He's tapped into that power by which he performs miracles in his own right. He's tapped into that power by which he promotes the gospel in power and in deed, word and indeed, powerfully. Now, it does not mean that that supernatural power demonstrates it in the same miraculous way in his servants today. It was for the apostles and for their age, and it ended with that. But that power that is unleashed in the preaching of the gospel is a power that brings you into contact with the supernatural. The Holy Spirit works supernaturally to change a dead, cold heart, a stony, cold heart. That takes a work of dynamite. To change a heart of stone into a heart of flesh takes a supernatural act. And in the preaching of Christ that act is pleased to occur over and over again until he comes. So take heart. Do not be discouraged that in the preaching of Paul's gospel, which brought many to Christ, the preaching of the gospel today that brings many to Christ, the power that was unleashed in Paul is unleashed again in terms of the power of ...of the supernatural Holy Spirit... ...convicting of sin... ...breaking the heart... ...causing them to cry out... ...Lord Jesus, save me. Lord Jesus, save me. Bring me into that rich union... ...that lavishly pours out upon me... ...all the treasures of that litany... ...of the world of the new creation... ...the light, the glory... ...the kingdom, the domain the redemption, the forgiveness, the blood, the peace, the reconciliation, pour out upon me all of those treasures, blessed Lord Jesus. Now I will praise you and forevermore I will increase in praising you even unto all eternity. Any questions? Comments? Welcome to the journey. It is lovely and beautiful. For Jesus is the fairest among 10,000 and the one altogether lovely. Amen. Let's pray. We bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're bringing the Son into history So that the history of Paul and the Colossians and our history can be touched by the riches of being united to the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. Who of us is worthy? Who of us is deserving? Who of us has any merit to commend ourselves to you? No, there's nothing in us but shame and sin and death. But you are life and forgiveness and glory. We hold on to you by faith through grace. And we trust you to hold on to us. Because it was you that first loved us. It was you that efficaciously first came to us. It was you that sealed the union, the blessed union with us. By the effects of your perfect work. And so we thank you for the rehearsal and description of it here in the Apostles' Epistle. And we pray, O Lord, that as we diligently labor and work hard to mature and to understand and to grow in wisdom and love and faithfulness and, yes, moral righteousness, as we seek to grow, sweeten that path and delight us in those byways and encourage us we we're a little bit confused and by all means enable us to lay our heads down on the breast of Jesus and say, thank you, Lord. For we thank you, Lord, in Jesus name. Amen.